Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. In this episode, I'll be reading chapters 1 and 2 of The Scarlet Pimpernel by Baroness Imusca Orxy. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 1 Paris, September 1792 A surging, seething, murmuring crowd of beings that are human only in name, for to the eye and ear they seem naught but savage creatures, animated by vile passions and by the lust of vengeance and of hate. The hour, some little time before sunset, and the place, the West Barricade, at the very spot where, a decade later, a proud tyrant raised an undying monument to the nation's glory and its own vanity. During the great part of the day, the guillotine had been kept busy at its ghastly work. All that France had boasted of it in the past centuries, of ancient names and blue blood, had paid toll to her desire for liberty and for fraternity. The carnage had only ceased at this late hour of the day because there were other more interesting sights for people to witness. A little while before the final closing of the barricades for the night, and so the crowd rushed away from the Place de la Grive and made for the various barricades in order to watch this interesting and amusing sight. It was to be seen every day, for those Aristos were such fools. They were traitors to the people, of course, all of them, men, women, and children, who happened to be descendants of the great men who since the Crusades had made the glory of France, her old noblesse. Their ancestors had oppressed the people, had crushed them under the scarlet heels of their dainty buckle shoes, and now the people had become the rulers of France and crushed their former masters, not beneath their heel, 
for they went shoeless mostly in these days. But beneath the more effectual weight, the knife of the guillotine. And daily, hourly, the hideous instrument of torture claimed its many victims. Old men, young women, tiny children, even until the day when it would finally demand the head of a king and a beautiful young queen. But this was as it should be, were not the people now the rulers of France. Every aristocrat was a traitor, as his ancestors had been before him. For two hundred years now, the people had sweated and toiled and starved to keep a lustful court in lavish extravagance. Now the descendants of those who had helped to make the courts brilliant had to hide for their lives, to fly if they wished to avoid the tardy vengeance of the people. And they did try to hide and tried to fly. That was just the fun of the whole thing. Every afternoon before the gates closed and the market carts went out in procession by the various barricades, some fool of an aristo endeavoured to evade the clutches of the Committee of Public Safety. In various disguises, under various pretexts, they tried to slip through the barriers which were so well guarded by citizen soldiers of the Republic. Men in women's clothes, women in male attire, children disguised in beggars' rags. There were some of all sorts, see devant counts, marquisques, even dukes who wanted to fly from France, reach England or some other equally accursed country, and there try to rouse foreign feelings against the glorious revolution, or to raise an army in order to liberate the wretched prisoners in the temple who had once called themselves sovereigns of France. But they were nearly always caught at the barricades. Sergeant Bibbert, especially at the West Gate, had a wonderful nose for scenting an aristo in the most perfect disguise. Then, of course, the fun began. Bibbert would look at his prey as a cat looks upon the mouse, playing with him, sometimes for quite a quarter of an hour, pretend to be hoodwinked by the disguise, by the wigs and other bits of theatrical makeup which hid the identity of a C-Devant, noble marquise or count. Oh, Bibbit had a keen sense of humour, and it was well worth hanging round the West Barricade in order to see him catch 
Generisto in the very act of trying to flee from the vengeance of the people. Sometimes Bibbit would let his prey actually out by the gates, allowing him to think for the space of two minutes at least that he had really escaped out of Paris, and might even manage to reach the coast of England. But Bibbit would let the unfortunate wretch walk about ten meters towards the open country, then he would send two men after him and bring him back, stripped of his disguise. Oh, that was extremely funny, for as often as not, the fugitive would prove to be a woman, some proud marchioness, who looked terribly comical when she found herself in Bibbit's clutches after all and knew that a summary trial would await her the next day, and, after that, the fond embrace of Madame Guillotine. No wonder that on this fine afternoon in September, the crowd round Bibbit's gate was eager and excited. The lust of blood grows with its satisfaction, There is no satiety. The crowd had seen a hundred noble heads fall beneath the guillotine today. It wanted to make sure that it would see another hundred fall on the morrow. Bibbit was sitting on an overturned and empty cask close by the gate of the barricade. A small detachment of city and soldiers was under his command. The work had been very hot lately. Those cursed Doristos were becoming terrified and tried their hardest to slip out of Paris. Men, women and children, whose ancestors, even in remote ages, had served those traitorous bourbons, were all traitors themselves and right food for the guillotine. Every day Bibbit had had the satisfaction of unmasking some fugitive royalists and sending them back to be tried by the Committee of Public Safety, presided over by that good patriot, Citoyen Fouquier Tinville. Robespierre and Danton both had commended Bibbert for his seal, and Bibbert was proud of the fact that he on his own initiative had sent at least fifty aristos to the guillotine. But today all the sergeants in command at the various barricades had had special orders. Recently a very great number of aristos had succeeded in escaping out of France and in reaching England safely. There were curious rumours about these escapes. They had become very frequent 
and singularly daring. The people's minds were becoming strangely excited about it all. Sergeant Grospierre had been sent to the guillotine for allowing a whole family of aristos to slip out of the northern gate under his very nose. It was asserted that these escapes were organized by a band of Englishmen whose daring seemed to be unparalleled and who, for sheer desire to meddle in what did not concern them, spent their time snatching away lawful victims destined for Madame la Guillotine. These rumours soon grew in extravagance. There was no doubt that this band of meddlesome Englishmen did exist. Moreover, they seemed to be under the leadership of a man whose pluck and audacity were almost fabulous. Strange stories were afloat of how he and those aristos whom he rescued became suddenly invisible as they reached the barricade and escaped out of the gates by sheer supernatural agency. No one had seen these mysterious Englishmen. As for their leader, he was never spoken of, save with a superstitious shudder. Citoyen Fouquier Tinville would, in the course of the day, receive a scrap of paper from some mysterious source. Sometimes he would find it in the pocket of his coat. At others it would be handed to him by someone in the crowd, whilst he was on his way to the sitting of the Committee of Public Safety. The paper always contained a brief notice that the band of meddlesome Englishmen were at work and it was always signed with a device drawn in red, a little star-shaped flower, which we in England call the Scarlet Pimpernel. Within a few hours of the receipt of this impudent notice, the Citwens of the Committee of Public Safety would hear that so many royalists and aristocrats had succeeded in reaching the coast and were on their way to England and safety. The guards at the gates had been doubled, the sergeants in command had been threatened with death, whilst liberal rewards were offered for the capture of these daring and impudent Englishmen. There was a sum of five thousand francs promised to the man who laid hands on the mysterious and elusive Scarlet Pimpernel. Everyone felt that Bibbit would be that man, 
and Bibbit allowed that belief to take firm root in everybody's mind. And so, day after day, people came to watch him at the West Gate, so as to be present when he laid hands on any fugitive aristo who perhaps might be accompanied by that mysterious Englishman. Bah, he said to his trusted corporal, Citwen Grospierre was a fool. Had it been me now at that north gate last week? Citwen Babbitt spat on the ground to express his contempt for his comrade's stupidity. How did it happen, Citwen? asked the corporal. Grospierre was at the gate. Keeping good watch, began Bibbet pompously, as the crowd closed in round him, listening eagerly to his narrative. We've all heard of this meddlesome Englishman, this accursed Scarlet Pimpernel. He won't get through my gate, more blur unless he be the devil himself. But Grospierre was a fool. The market carts were going through the gates. There was one laden with casks and driven by an old man with a boy beside him. Grospierre was a bit drunk, but he thought himself very clever. He looked into the casks, most of them at least, and saw they were empty and let the cart go through. A murmur of wrath and contempt went round the group of ill-clad wretches who crowded round Sitwen Bibbit. Half an hour later, continued the sergeant, up comes a captain of the guard with a squad of some dozen soldiers with him. Has a cart gone through? he asks Grospierre breathlessly. Yes, says Grospierre, not half an hour ago. And you have let them escape, shouts the captain furiously. You'll go to the guillotine for this. Sitwen Sergeant, that cart held concealed the seed of Aunt Douce de Chalice and all his family. What? thunders Grospierre, aghast. I, and the driver was none other than that cursed Englishman, the Scarlet Pimpernel. A howl of execration greeted this tale. Citwen Grospierre had paid for his blunder on the guillotine. But what a fool! Oh, what a fool! Bibbit was laughing so much at his own tale that it was some time before he could continue. 
after them, my men, shouts the captain, he said after a while. Remember the reward. After them, they cannot have gone far. And with that he rushes through the gate, followed by his dozen soldiers. But it was too late, shouted the crowd excitedly. They never got them. Curse that Grospierre for his folly. He deserved his fate. Fancy not examining those casks properly. But these sallies seemed to amuse Citoyen Bibbit exceedingly. He laughed until his sides ached and the tears streamed down his cheeks. Nay, nay, he said at last, those aristos weren't in the cart. The driver was not the Scarlet Pimpernel. What? No, the captain of the guard was that damned Englishman in disguise, and every one of his soldiers aristos. The crowd this time said nothing. The story certainly savoured of the supernatural, and though the Republic had abolished God, it had not quite succeeded in killing the fear of the supernatural in the hearts of the people. Truly that Englishman must have been the devil himself. The sun was sinking low in the west. Bibbit prepared himself to close the gates. On Ivan the carts, he said. Some dozen covered carts were drawn up in a row ready to leave town, in order to fetch the produce from the country close by for market the next morning. They were mostly well known to Bibbert, as they went through his gate twice every day on their way to and from the town. He spoke to one or two of the drivers, mostly women, and was a great pains to examine the inside of the carts. You never know, he would say, and I'm not going to be caught like that fool Grospierre. The women who drove the carts usually spent their day on the Place de la Grive, behind the platform of the guillotine, knitting and gossiping, while they watched the rows of tumbrils arriving with the victims the reign of terror claimed every day. It was great fun to see the aristos arriving for the reception of Madame la Guillotine, and the places close by the platform were very much sought after. 
Bibbert, during the day, had been on duty on the Place. He recognized most of the old hags, Trichotusis, as they were called, who sat there knitting while head after head fell beneath the knife, and they themselves got quite bespattered with the blood of those cursed Aristos. Hey, Lemaire, said Bibbert to one of these horrible hags, what have you got there? He had seen her earlier in the day, with her knitting and the whip of her cart close beside her. Now she had fastened a row of curly locks to the whip handle, all colours, from gold to silver, fair to dark, and she stroked them with her huge, bony fingers as she laughed at Bibbert. I made friends with Madame Guillotine's lover, she said with a coarse laugh. He cut these off for me from the heads as they rolled down. He has promised me some more tomorrow, but I don't know if I shall be at my usual place. Ah, how is that, Le Maire? asked Bibbit, who, hardened soldier though he was, could not help shuddering at the awful loathsomeness of this semblance of a woman with her ghastly trophy on the handle of her whip. My grandson has got the smallpox, she said with the jerk of her thumb towards the inside of the cart. Some say it's the plague. If it is, I shan't be allowed to come into Paris tomorrow. At the first mention of the word smallpox, Bibbit had stepped hastily backwards, and when the old hag spoke of the plague, he retreated from her as fast as he could. Curse you, he muttered, whilst the whole crowd hastily avoided the cart, leaving it standing all alone in the midst of the place. The old hag laughed. Curse you, Sitwen, for being a coward, she said. Bah, what a man to be afraid of sickness. More blue, the plague. Everyone was awestruck and silent. Filled with horror for the loathsome malady, the one thing which still had the power to arouse terror and disgust in these savage, brutalized creatures. Get out with you and with your plague-stricken brood, shouted Bibbert hoarsely, and with another rough laugh and coarse jest, the old hag whipped up her lean nag and drove her cart out of the gate.
The incident had spoilt the afternoon. The people were terrified of these two horrible curses. The two maladies which nothing could cure, and which were the precursors of an awful and lonely death. They hung about the barricades, silent and sullen for a while, eyeing one another suspiciously, avoiding each other as if by instinct, lest the plague lurked already in their midst. Presently, as in the case of Grospierre, a captain of the guard appeared suddenly, but he was known to Bibbet, and there was no fear of his turning out to be a sly Englishman in disguise. A cart, he shouted breathlessly, even before he had reached the gates. What cart? asked Bibbet roughly. Driven by an old hag, a covered cart. There were a dozen. An old hag who said her son had the plague. Yes, you have not let them go. More blue, said Bibbet, whose purple cheeks had suddenly become white with fear. The cart contained the sea-devant Comtesse de Tournay and her two children, all of them traitors and condemned to death. And their driver, muttered Bibbet, as a superstitious shudder ran down his spine. Sacre tonnerre, said the captain, but it is feared that it was that accursed Englishman himself, the Scarlet Pimpernel. Chapter 2 The Fisherman's Rest In the kitchen, Sally was extremely busy. Saucepans and frying pans were standing in rows on the gigantic hearth. The huge stock pot stood in a corner, and the jack turned with slow deliberation and presented alternately to the glow every side of a noble sirloin of beef. The two little kitchen maids bustled around, eager to help, hot and panting, with cotton sleeves well tucked up above the dimpled elbows, and giggling over some private jokes of their own, whenever Miss Sally's back was turned for a moment. And old Jemima, stolid in temper, and solid in bulk, kept up a long and subdued grumble while she stirred the stock pot methodically over the fire. What ho, Sally, came in cheerful if none too melodious accents from the coffee room close by. 
Lud bless my soul, exclaimed Sally with a good-humoured laugh. What be they all wanting now, I wonder? Beer, of course, grumbled Jemima. You don't expect Jimmy Pickin to have done with one tankard, do ye? Mr. Harry, he looked uncommon thirsty too, simpered Martha, one of the little kitchen maids, and her beady black eyes twinkled as they met those of her companion, whereupon both started on a round of short and suppressed giggles. Sally looked cross for a moment, and thoughtfully rubbed her hands against her shapely hips. Her palms were itching, evidently, to come into contact with Martha's rosy cheeks. But inherent good humour prevailed, and with a pout and a shrug of the shoulders, she turned her attention to the fried potatoes. What? Oh, Sally, hey, Sally. And a chorus of pewter mugs tapped with impatient hands against the oak tables of the coffee room accompanied the shouts for mine host buxom daughter. Sally, shouted a more persistent voice, are ye going to be all night with that their beer. I do think father might get the beer for them, muttered Sally, as Jemima, stolidly without further comment, took a couple of foam-crowned jugs from the shelf and began filling a number of pewter tankards with some of that home-brewed ale from which the fisherman's rest had been famous since the days of King Charles. He knows how busy we are in here. Your father is too busy discussing politics with Mr. Empseed to worry itself about the kitchen, grumbled Jemima under her breath. Sally had gone to the small mirror which hung in the corner of the kitchen, and hastily smoothing her hair and setting her frilled cap at its most becoming angle over her dark curls. Then she took up the tankards by their handles, three in each strong hand, and, laughing, grumbling, blushing, carried them through into the coffee room. There, There was certainly no sign of that bustle and activity which kept four women busy and hot in the glowing kitchen beyond. The coffee room of the Fisherman's Rest is a show place now at the beginning of the 20th century. At the end of the 18th, in the year of Grace 1792, It had not yet gained that notoriety and importance which a hundred additional years and the craze of the age 
have since bestowed on it. Yet it was an old place, even then, for the oak rafters and beams were already black with age, as were the panelled seats with their tall backs and long polished tables between, on which innumerable pewter tankards had left fantastic patterns of many-sized rings. In the leaded window, high up, a row of pots of scarlet geranium and blue larkspur gave the bright note of colour against the dull background of the oak. That Mr. Jellyband, landlord of the Fisherman's Rest at Dover, was a prosperous man, was of course clear to the most casual observer. The pewter on the fine old dresses, the brass above the gigantic hearth, shone like silver and gold. The red-tiled floor was as brilliant as the scarlet geranium on the windowsill. This meant that his servants were good and plentiful, that the custom was constant, and of that order which necessitated the keep-up of the coffee-room to a high standard of elegance and order. As Sally came in, laughing through her frowns and displaying a row of dazzling white teeth, she greeted with shouts and chorus of applause. Why, here's Sally. What ho, Sally. Hurrah for pretty Sally. I thought you'd grown deaf in that kitchen of yours, muttered Jimmy Pitkin as he passed the back of his hand across her very dry lips. All right, all right laughed Sally, as she deposited the freshly filled tankards upon the table. Why, what a hurry to be sure, and is your grandmother a-dying and you wantin' to see the poor soul afore she'm gone? I never seed such a mighty rushin'. A chorus of good-humoured laughter greeted this witticism which gave the company their present food for many jokes, for some considerable time. Sally now seemed in less of a hurry to get back to her pots and pans. A young man with fair curly hair and eager bright blue eyes was engaging most of her attention and the whole of her time while broad witticisms anent Jimmy Pitkin's fictitious grandmother flew from mouth to mouth, mixed with heavy puffs of pungent tobacco smoke. Facing the hearth, his legs wide apart, a long clay pipe in his mouth, stood mine host himself, worthy Mr. Jellyband, Landlord of the Fisherman's Rest, as his father had been before him. Aye, 
and his grandfather, and great-grandfather too, for that matter. Portly in build, jovial in countenance, and somewhat bald of pate, Mr. Jellyband was indeed a typical rural John Bull of those days, the days when our prejudiced insultry was at its height, when to an Englishman, be he lord, yeoman, or peasant, the whole of the continent of Europe was a den of immorality, and the rest of the world an unexploited land of savages and cannibals. There he stood, mine worthy host, firm and well set up on his limbs, smoking his long church warden, and caring nothing for nobody at home, and despising everybody abroad. He wore the typical scarlet waistcoat, with shiny brass buttons, the cordroid breeches, the grey worsted stockings and smart buckled shoes that characterised every self-respecting innkeeper in Great Britain in these days. And while pretty, motherless Sally had need of four pairs of hands to do all the work that fell on her shapely shoulders. Worthy Jellyband discussed the affairs of nations with most privileged guests. The coffee room indeed, lighted by two well-polished lamps, which hung from the raftered ceiling, looked cheerful and cosy in the extreme. Through the dense cloud of tobacco smoke that hung about in every corner, the faces of Mr. Jellyband's customers appeared red and pleasant to look at, and on good terms with themselves, their host and all the world, from every side of the room, loud guffaws accompanied pleasant, if not highly intellectual, conversation, while Sally's repeated giggles testified to the good use Mr. Harry Waite was making of the short time she seemed inclined to spare him. They were mostly fisher folk who patronised Mr. Jellyband's coffee room, but fishermen are known to be very thirsty people. The salt which they breathe in when they are on the sea accounts for their parched throats when on shore. But the fisherman's rest was something more than a rendezvous for these humble folk. The London and Dover coach started from the hostel daily, and passengers who came across the channel, and those who started for the grand tour, all became acquainted with Mr. Jellyband, his French wines, and his home-brewed ales. It was towards the close of September, 1792, and the weather which had been brilliant and hot throughout 
the month had suddenly broken up. For two days torrent of rain had deluged the south of England, doing its level best to ruin what chances the apples and pears and late plums had of becoming really fine, self-respecting fruit. Even now it was beating against the leaded windows and tumbling down the chimney, making the cheerful wood fire sizzle in the hearth. Lud, did you ever see such a wet September, Mr. Jellyband? asked Mr. Hempseed. He sat in one of the seats inside the hearth, did Mr. Hempseed, for he was an authority and an important personage not only at the Fisherman's Rest, where Mr. Jellyband always made a special selection of him as a foil for political arguments, but throughout the neighborhood, where his learning and notably his knowledge of the scriptures was held in the most profound awe and respect. With one hand buried in the capacious pockets of his corduroys, underneath his elaborately worked, well-worn smock, the other holding his long clay pipe, Mr. Hempseed sat there looking dejectedly across the room at the rivulets of moisture which trickled down the window panes. No, replied Mr. Jellyband sententiously. I dunno, Mr. Empseed, as I ever did, and I've been in these parts nigh on sixty years. Aye, you wouldn't recollect the first three years of them sixty, Mr. Jellyband quietly interposed Mr. Hempseed. I dunno as ever I'd see an infant take much note to the weather, lestways not in these parts, and I've lived here nigh on seventy-five years, Mr. Jellyband. Superiority of this wisdom was so incontestable that for the moment Mr. Jellyband was not ready with his usual flow of argument. It do seem more like April than September, don't it? continued Mr. Hempseed dolefully, as a shower of raindrops fell with a sizzle upon the fire. Aye, that it do, assented the worthy host. But then what can you spect, Mr. Hempseed? I say, with such a government as we've got. Mr. Hempseed shook his head with an infinity of wisdom, tempered by deeply rooted mistrust of the British climate and the British government. I don't spec nothing, Mr. Jellyband, he said. Poor folks like us is of no account up in London. I knows that, and it's not often as I do complain. 
but when it comes to such wet weather in September, and all me fruit are rotting and dying like the captain mother's firstborn, and doing no more good than they did, poor dears, save to a lot of Jews, peddlers and such, with their oranges and such like foreign ungodly fruit, which nobody buys if English apples and pears was nicely swelled, as the scriptures say. That's quite right, Mr. Empseed, retorted Jellyband. And as I say, what can you expect? There's all them Frenchy devils over the channel yonder, a murdering their king and nobility, and Mr. Pitt and Mr. Fox and Mr. Burke are fighting and wrangling between them. If we Englishmen should blow them to go in their ungodly way, let them murder, says Mr. Pitt. Stop them, say Mr. Burke. And let them murder, says I, and be demmed to them, said Mr. Hempseed emphatically for he had but little liking for his friend Jellyband's political arguments, wherein he always got out of his depth, and had but little chance for displaying those pearls of wisdoms which had earned for him so high a reputation in the neighbourhood and so many free tankards of ale at the fisherman's rest. Let a murder... He repeated again, but don't let's have such rain in September, for that is again the law and the scriptures which says, Lud, Mr. Harry, how you make me jump. It was unfortunate for Sally and her flirtation that this remark of hers should have occurred at the precise moment when Mr. Hempseed was collecting his breath. In order to deliver himself of one of those scriptural utterances which had made him famous, for it brought down upon her pretty head the full flood of her father's wrath. Now then, Sally, me girl, now then, he said, trying to force a frown upon his good-humoured face. Stop that falling with them young jacksnapes and get on with the work. The work's getting on all right, father. But Mr. Jellyband was preemptory. He had other views for his buxom daughter, his only child, who would in God's good time become the owner of the fisherman's rest that to see her married to one of these young fellows, who earned but a precarious livelihood with their nets. Did ye hear me speak, Miguel? He said in that quiet tone, which no one inside the inn dared to disobey. Get on with my Lord Tony's supper, for if it ain't the best we can do, and he not satisfied. See what you'll get, that's all. Reluctantly, Sally obeyed. 
Is you expecting special guests then tonight, Mr. Jellyband? Asked Jimmy Pitkin in a loyal attempt to divert his host's attention from the circumstances connected with Sally's exit from the room. Aye, that I be, replied Jellyband. Friends of my lord Tony's self, dukes and duchesses from over the water yonder, whom the young lord and his friends, Sir Andrew Fox, and other young noblemen, have helped out of the clutches of them murdering devils. But this was too much for Mr. Hempseed's querulous philosophy. Lud, he said, what they do that for, I wonder. I don't hold not with the interfering in other folks' ways, as the scriptures say. Maybe Mr. Empseed, interrupted Jellyband with biting sarcasm, as you're a personal friend of Mr. Pitt, and as you says along with Mr. Fox, let em murder, says you. Pardon me, Mr. Jellyband, feebly protested Mr. Hempseed. I dunno as ever I did. But Mr. Jellyband had at last succeeded in getting upon his favourite hobby horse and had no intention of dismounting in any hurry. Or maybe you've made friends with some of them French chaps who they do say have come over here or purpose to make us Englishmen agree with their murder in ways. I dunno what you mean, Mr. Jellyband, suggested Mr. Hempseed. All I know is... All I know is, loudly asserted mine host, that there was my friend Peppercorn, who owns the blue-faced boar, and as true and loyal an Englishman as you'd see in the land. And now look at him. He made friends with some of them frog-eaters, obnobbed with them just if they was English, and not just a lot of immoral, god-forsaken, furring spies. Well, and what happened? Peppercorn... He now up and talks revolutions and liberty and down with aristocrats, just like Mr. Empseed over here. Pardon me, Mr. Jellyband, again interposed Mr. Hempseed feebly. I dunno as I ever did. Mr. Jellyband had appealed to the company in general, who were listening awestruck and open-mouthed at the recital of Mr. Peppercorn's defalcations. At one table, two customers, gentlemen apparently by their clothes, had pushed aside their half-finished game of dominoes and had been listening for some time, and evidently with much amusement at Mr. Jellyband's international opinions. One of them now, with a quiet, sarcastic smile, still lurking round the corners of his mobile mouth, turned towards the centre of the room 
where Mr. Jellyband was standing. You seem to think, mine host friend, he said quietly, that these Frenchmen, spies I think you called them, are mighty clever fellows to have made mincemeat so to speak of with your friend Mr. Peppercorn's opinions. How did they accomplish that now, think you? Blood, sir, I suppose they talked him over, those Frenchies. I've heard it said, have got the gift of the gab, and Mr. Empseed here will tell you how it is that they just twist some people round their little finger. Indeed, and is that so, Mr. Hempseed? inquired the stranger politely. Nay, sir, replied Mr. Hempseed, much irritated. I dunno as I can give you the information you require. Faith, then, said the stranger, let us hope, my worthy host, that these clever spies will not succeed in upsetting your extremely loyal opinions. But this was too much for Mr. Jellyband's pleasant equanimity. He burst into an uproarous fit of laughter, which was soon echoed by those who happened to be in his debt. Ha ha ha! Ho ho ho! He he he! He laughed in every key, did my worthy host, and laughed until his sides ached and his eyes streamed. At me, hark at that, did ye hear him say that they'd be upset in my opinions? Eh, lud love you, sir, but you do say some strange things. Well, Mr. Jellyband, said Mr. Hempseed stentiously, you know what the scriptures say. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. But then our key, Mr. Hempseed, retorted Jellyband, still holding his sides with laughter. The scriptures didn't know me. Why, I wouldn't so much as drink a glass of ale with one of them murdering Frenchmen, and nothing would make me change my opinions. Why, I've heard it said that them frog-eaters can't even speak the king's English, so, of course, if any of them tried to speak their godforsaken lingo to me, why, I should spot them directly, see? and forewarned is forearmed, as the saying goes. I, my honest friend, assented the stranger cheerfully. I see that you are much too sharp and a match for any twenty Frenchmen, and here's to your very good help, my worthy host, if you'll do me the honour to finish this bottle of mine with me. I am sure you're very polite, sir, said Mr. Jellyband, wiping his eyes which were still streaming with the abundance of his laughter, and I don't mind if I do, 
the stranger poured out a couple of tankards full of wine, and having offered one to mine host, he took the other himself. Loyal Englishmen as we all are, he said, whilst the same humorous smile played round the corners of his lips. Loyal as we are, we must admit that this at least is one good thing which comes to us from France. Aye, we'll none of us deny that, sir, assented mine host. And here's to the best landlord in England, our worthy host, Mr. Jellyband, said the stranger in a loud tone of voice. Hip, hip, hurrah, retorted the whole company present. Then there was loud clapping of hands, and mugs and tankards made a rattling music upon the tables, to the accompaniment of loud laughter at nothing in particular, and of Mr. Jellyband's muttered exclamations. Just fancy me being talked over by any godforsaken furnerer. What? Lud love you, sir, but you do say some strange things. To which obvious fact the stranger heartily assented. It was certainly a preposterous suggestion that anyone could ever upset Mr. Jellyband's firmly rooted opinions and end the utter worthlessness of the inhabitants of the whole continent of Europe.